either uh, while they're in Egypt getting ready to, to leave or as they wait uh, just outside the promised land as he's reminding them of who God is and who they are and his purposes for them as they get ready to enter into uh, to that land. Um, we've seen that God has been revealing to us who he is, uh, how to make sense of our world, our purpose in it, um, and our role as his people in this great work of rescue and restoration that he's done. Genesis begins with God's incredible creating all things just by speaking words. Uh, and so Genesis opens up with creation and life and flourishing. But this morning, as we come to the end of Genesis, Genesis ends with a coffin. From creation to a coffin. Why in there? Seems like such a discouraging place to end this book. What is God up to? What does a coffin teach us about our God and His work in the world? Let's look together uh, in uh, Genesis this morning. We'll be in chapter 50. Um, we're going to be looking at uh, verses uh, 15 through the end of the chapter, through uh, verse 26. And if you're following along in one of the Bibles, the black Bibles there in your chairs, you'll find this on page 44. So follow along with me as we hear from the Word of God this morning. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a messenger to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you. And bring you up out of this land, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your for your word. We pray that you would teach us this morning. Holy Spirit, apply the living and active word of God to the hearts and lives of your people. We pray 
In Christ's name, amen. Last week, as we looked, Genesis is just ending with people dying. Um, last week, we saw Jacob died, and his, his promise that he had everybody swear was that they would take him back to Egypt. That he wasn't going to be buried, I mean, take him back to the promised land, back to Canaan. He, he was not going to be buried in Egypt. What we saw from that is you know, something that Jacob was, was teaching and showing us, what Moses wanted to communicate to us in the midst of Jacob's death, is that God's people are not meant for the kingdom, kingdoms of this world. We dwell and we're, we're meant for, for God's kingdom, to dwell with Him as His people, in His, in his place, under His good rule and in His presence. This morning, though, we're, we're looking at, at Joseph's death. And Whereas Jacob said, I'm not going to remain in Egypt. As soon as I die, take me back to the promised land. Joseph, his body stays. His coffin stays in Egypt. There's this long wait. A wait. And Joseph says, when God visits, you will take me to Egypt or to the promised land then. Joseph is, is communicating and what we're seeing in him is there's this other aspect of, of God's people and something that we're being called to is this long wait for the kingdom. Notice, notice what he, he says of this wait in verses uh, 24 and following. Joseph draws his, calls his brothers. This might not necessarily be referring to his Physical brothers, it can just be re- referring and using that term to speak of his relatives in general. Because remember, Joseph was one of the, the younger sons of Jacob, so some of the other ones might have died at this point. But he says to them, I'm about to, to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Um, and it, it goes on. He says, uh, God will surely visit you and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And the wait begins. Think about as this coffin sits around. Joseph's in it. He's communicated to them. God will come. God will come back. He will come and visit His people. We will not be in Egypt forever and we will leave. In fact, while we wait and encourage you of this, I'm gonna, I want you to bury or keep me in this coffin here in Egypt. And when He comes as He will, I want you to take me back, take my bones there and bury me in the promised land. But until then, we're going to wait and wait and wait and wait for 400 years or more. They looked at this coffin of Joseph buried in it, hopefully remembering his words, God will come. God will come. We must wait. We must endure. But after a while, after that generation died, and they pass this on so the next generation knows, hey, you see that coffin over there? Some point, God's coming. And when he does, we got to make sure we take Joseph and his bones back to the promised land. Because he told us God's coming. And that generation dies out and the wait continues. 
And that generation dies out and the wait continues. And then oppression sets in. Pharaohs come in that don't remember Joseph and the people of God are oppressed and slavery gets hard. The the Pharaohs begin to try to kill out all of the people of Israel. And still they look at this coffin and this guy who said, God will visit you. God will surely visit you, he says. And they look at this dead guy and they wait under oppression, remembering that he says, God will surely visit you. After a while, what do you begin to think? It's been 400 years. How long are we supposed to wait on this God that you said is supposed to show up? Where is he? You've died. 400 years of our people have died. And right now we're struggling and suffering under this cruel oppressor of a Pharaoh who's trying to kill all of our children. Back in 1923, there was a uh, professor of agriculture at the University of Tokyo. Uh, this guy's name was uh, Hidesaburo Ueno. That's all my the Japanese pronunciation I've got. Well, anyway, he uh, he got uh, an Akita, a, a, a dog that was about a year old, and he named this dog uh, Hachiko. Uh, and this uh, he raised this dog, uh, and every day. Uh, as he would go to the train station to take the ride to work, the dog would walk with him. And so they'd walk to the train station. He'd see, uh, we'll just call him the professor. But he would see the professor off to his, his job at the University of Tokyo, and then the dog would go back home. And then around the time that the professor's train was set to arrive, people would see the dog walking through town, and he would go to the train station and sit there and wait for his, uh, his owner to come. It happened every, every day that the guy was going to work for, uh, for a year or two while uh, um, he, was, he was working. And then one day, as Hachiko and his, his, the professor were going to the train station, he saw the professor off. He goes back home. The professor had uh, uh, an accident while he was... Um, there was some sort of hemorrhage or something happened in his brain, and he died while he was uh, teaching his, his class. The dog went to the train station to wait on him, and he didn't show up. The dog goes home. The next day, at the time when the train should arrive and his owner should get off of the train, the dog shows up to wait on him again. The professor doesn't get off. This happens every day for nine years Nine months and 15 days until Hachiko died. On one level, you can look at that and see, wow, what loyalty. What loyalty this Akita has for his owner that every day, trusting and knowing, he's going to show up, he's going to show up. This is what we did every day. And he keeps going back. He keeps going back. The weight doesn't deter him. Every day until his death, he goes awaiting his owner to come back. But on the other side, does it? Kind of brings up pity. Poor, poor dog. Doesn't, he doesn't realize that his master's dead. His master's Never coming back. 
And although we can look at him as he's going and waiting for this professor to come back who's never going to come and may encourage or inspire, and it has, the Japanese people of, of this great picture of loyalty. And there's a statue there to this day uh, highlighting this dog. Begin to, to realize uh, on, on one level that element of pity There's some people that you can hope in and some things that you can hope in that in the end, it's there's it's not really worth it. The guy's never coming home as much as he goes and waits and waits and waits. The professor is never going to come. He does not have the ability to overcome death. In the midst of all that's going on in Egypt, people could begin to doubt and wonder and worry. Joseph, what a great picture of loyalty. But after 400 years, maybe you begin to think, poor Joseph. He had all these great hopes and these these dreams and wishes and wishful thinking of what God would do. But, I mean, look at it. He's never going to come. Maybe we could look at this coffin as a way to inspire us to loyalty and confidence, but we really know deep down inside he's never going to show up. But Joseph here is not not wishful thinking. Joseph says, surely God will visit you. It may have taken 400 years, but God did visit His people. He didn't just show up to say, oh, I've heard you've been waiting on me. I'm sorry I took so long. There, there. I'm going to comfort you and then leave. He didn't just look to see what was going on, but God visited and He used His power and His might to deliver His people in a magnificent way that demonstrated his power, not only to the, to the Israelites, but to the Egyptians and to the whole world, that he was the one true and living God who he's worth waiting on. He will always eventually show up at the time to come and bring about redemption. And from this point on, the, the wait continued for another, for hundreds of years awaiting. Remember, we've been still, we've been waiting. Uh, by the time Jesus comes, it's thousands since the promise was given in uh, Genesis 3.15 that one would come who would crush and defeat and destroy the evil one and would make all things right. And they've been waiting and waiting and waiting. But eventually God showed up. What Joseph's coffin sitting in Egypt for 400 years reminds us of is that God will surely come. We can hope in Him and know and have the confidence that He will return. He did show up, as Joseph said. When God continued to promise His people, I'm coming, God will be with you, I will come and defeat all of sin and death and rescue you and restore all things. 
We had to wait a long time, but he came. His disciples had to wait three days while he was dead. But what happened? Just as he promised, I will come to you. And he did. And then Jesus left. He said, I'm going to the right hand of my father, but, but I will come back. The wait. The wait is part of the Christian life. The wait at the end of Genesis reminds us of what it means to trust and walk with our God. To wait on Him. That Joseph is pointing to us that we are, as God's people, we're going to have to wait. We're going to have to endure. We're going to have to persevere. Waiting and longing for His coming and His return. Joseph was so sure. But how can we be sure? Who, who is this God that we're waiting on? Maybe, like the professor, some unforeseen accident could occur that would deter him from his purposes and his intentions of coming back. And maybe, maybe we are waiting in vain. It matters who it is that we're hoping in, who we're waiting on, who we're trusting in. Uh, in, in our uh, house, um, Beckett recently has gotten into this pattern where in order to motivate Greta to do the things that he wants her to do, whether to follow him or leave his Legos alone or come downstairs with him, he'll... He'll ask her if she wants something. Greta, do you want some ice cream? And she'll go, yeah. And she'll just follow him around the house, expecting that he's going to give her ice cream. Greta, do you want to go to the beach? Yeah. And she'll follow him around, waiting and waiting. But we're trying to communicate to Beckett. Buddy, you can't. Offer things like this. I know you're just suggesting it, but you don't have the power or the ability to bring it about. We don't have ice cream. We're not going to the beach. So don't offer things that you can't fulfill. Don't give these promises that you can't keep. You see, Beckett can offer all the promises in the world, but he lacks the power, the sovereignty to bring about their fulfillment. What, what, about, what about our God? Is He some cosmic Beckett that's just offering out, do you want redemption? Do you want a world that's all made right? Do you want deliverance from your sin? Follow me. Let's see. Look, look in verse... 20 and following. Joseph's brothers come to him confessing their, their sin. And this is what Joseph says about what has happened and what they've experienced. Um, we'll begin actually in verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Notice what Joseph says here. 
Remember what happened? They hated him because of his father's favoritism. They threw him into a pit. We're going to kill him, but decided we can actually make some money off of him. Instead of killing him, we won't have anything. They sell him into slavery into Egypt, and he's gone. He suffers unjustly. Remember, under, uh, uh, under, in Potiphar's house, then in the prison, until eventually the Lord uh, raises him to prominence. As Joseph is reflecting back on this, he says of that act and everything that was going on, that evil, remember, that's the terms that even the brothers have used, of transgression, sin, evil. That's the way that they're describing how they responded to Joseph. He says, what was true in that, this situation that's brought us to this point that happened because you meant evil against me. But of the same events, the same activities, the same result, what it says, what Joseph says of God is this. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. It doesn't say that God used it for good. It doesn't say that God encountered it and, and, and somehow turned it around, even though you were going this way and God was able to work through that situation and bring it about for good. It says... God meant it for good. All of this was a part of God's purpose, His will, His decree, His intentions. This may be hard for us to to wrestle with. We see both of these intentions going on at the same time. The brothers meant it for evil. God meant it for good. What? Is is God responsible for their sin? No, Joseph isn't attributing sin to God at all. The ones who are carrying out what they intended to do, their own desires, doing what they freely choose chose to do. Understand, as we talk about freedom, we're saying under the the bounds and our enslavement to sin, the brothers are doing specifically what they want to do. But overarching all of it, God's purposes and His intentions from the foundations of the world, of the way that His plan would be carried out, He purposed and decreed and intended that this deliverance would come about through the sin of the brothers, sending Joseph to Egypt, him suffering unjustly in Potiphar's house and in prison before he's risen to this place of prominence to bring about deliverance. What Joseph is getting at is that nothing will surprise God. He has intended it all and purposed it all even the acts of evil and sin from the foundations of the world. Nothing is outside of God's sovereign control. Nothing will surprise Him. Nothing will throw a wrench into His plan. God doesn't look into the future and see what's going to happen and then decide to do. God decrees what will occur. Notice how 
this continues to come up throughout, uh, throughout Scripture of the character and the power of our God. From Isaiah chapter 46, verses 8 through 10, this is what the prophet Isaiah says of, uh, of God. Um, in fact, this is God speaking himself. Remember this and stand firm. Call it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. How, is, how am I uniquely God? What is it that sets me apart from all other supposed gods and all other people? It's this, it says in verse 10. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. He is absolutely sovereign. He decrees and declares and determines the end from the beginning before any of them had occurred. Uh, This isn't just for big things. It's for small things. Listen to what, what Jesus says as he's teaching his disciples in Matthew chapter 10. He speaks of it uh, this way. As we reflect on God's sovereign power and Jesus is encouraging his disciples and his followers not to fear and not to lose heart, he says this um, in verse, chapter 10, verse 27, um, uh, verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So God's sovereign power, his purposes, his carrying out of his plan, isn't just big things and he leaves all the little things just to fall out. Even a bird falling from the sky doesn't happen apart from God's ordaining and decreeing it. A hair falling from our head only occurs as it's carrying out and fulfilling the plan and decree of our God. What kind of power is this? Who is this God? This isn't some little toddler walking around, some little five-year-old tossing out willy-nilly promises. He can actually bring about what he says. Nothing will get in his way. Nothing will thwart his purposes. Listen, even the most heinous things fall out and work out fulfilling of God's purposes. In Acts chapter 2, as... uh, uh, Peter is speaking uh, on the the day of uh, Pentecost to the the people who were there to to celebrate. He says this in verses twenty two and following, chapter uh, chapter two of Acts. Men of Israel, hear these words: Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. 
the death of Jesus, the most heinous act of evil as humanity killed their God, happened as a part of the predetermined plan of our God, the carrying out of His will. Peter finds great comfort in this because it comes up later in chapter 4 of Acts. As he's released from prison uh, after being captured for proclaiming the good news of Jesus, they gather together, the people of God, and they begin praying. And listen how they refer to God. They refer to Him as their sovereign God. In verse 24 of chapter 4 of Acts, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and His anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your words with all boldness. The Scriptures do not shy away from proclaiming the absolute sovereign power and might of our God. Do we doubt that this God will follow through with what He has said? The Scriptures say no. Take comfort in the fact that this God, this sovereign God, that has working out His plan where no sparrow falls apart from His intending it, no sin has occurred or great atrocity or suffering or famine or plenty, or joy, or excitement. Nothing happens outside of the way that He specifically planned for it to happen. This means that His plan will not be be thwarted. It will not be stopped. He will return. God does not have to plan for anything. He plans out how everything will occur. And it will absolutely always happen according to His purposes. Joseph says, why can we surely know that He will visit us? Because the Sovereign One always accomplishes His purposes and His plan. We can trust Him. We need to keep these things in mind. We're seeing played out throughout Genesis God's sovereign, absolute power. Not just speaking things into existence physically, but decreeing what will occur. But we've got to keep this in place because someone with that kind of power, that kind of might, that kind of authority is dangerous unless, unless they're good. Unless they love their people. Unless they're doing what they're doing and this plan is accomplishing the good, gracious, perfectly righteous work of our God. And that's what we've seen throughout Genesis. The sovereign one is the good one. The one who, in his purposes, intended that he would come and die and suffer to deliver his people who rebelled against him all according to his plan. 
Some of this may be uh, um, tough to, to think through. Scripture never affirms uh, that God is, is anywhere responsible for sin. Humanity is completely responsible because, as Joseph is saying, we're doing what we want to do. You meant it for evil. God purposed it for good. Uh, we're not attributing sin at all to God. He is perfectly righteous and holy. But what we are affirming that the Scriptures teach is that He is sovereign and everything falls out according to His plan and His purposes. If you want to look more into this, I've put a couple of books up here. One is called What is Providence? Providence is uh, a, a term that's used to describe God's governing all of His creatures and all of their actions. There's also another book up there called um, uh, Suffering and the Goodness of God. And there's a chapter in there on the problem of evil by a guy named John Frame that also is very helpful for discussing this. Uh, and also you may want to look in the Westminster Confession, chapters 3 and chapters 5 that help really process through this and see what Scripture teaches. And there's another book up there that uh, is a good commentary on the Westminster Confession that will help process through it. But please look at the, the Scriptures. Um, but with this confidence that we have, Joseph gains confidence from God's sovereignty. Uh, Isaiah gains confidence from God's sovereignty. Jesus says, do not fear because God is sovereign. Peter says... We gain strength and confidence because we know our God will do what He has said. What do we do, though? How do we wait? What do we do while we're waiting on this sovereign one to come? Notice how Joseph responds. Remember what the brothers say and how they've acted and what, what it is that they, they speak to him. Uh, remember, they're, they're afraid of him uh, in verse 15. It may be that he'll hate us and he'll pay us back for all the evil that we've done. And then they communicate to him, forgive us for the transgression, for the sin, for the evil, for the transgression that the servants of the God of your father have done. They're affirming and confessing with their own mouths what we saw play out through Genesis. The way they responded to Joseph was they, they treated him with evil, with treachery, with sin. But notice how Joseph responds to them. In their confession, he breaks down and he weeps, but, but he says this in verse 19. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Remember, this is falling out as Joseph has been saying. This is what God has intended and his purpose. He's actually brought you here to save you, to redeem you. Am I in the place of God? No. I'm not going to step in the place and try to go against what God's doing. If I realize God's intentions and his purposes in the world, then to respond faithfully means I live out as one of his people. I participate in God's work. I live out and reflect his character in the world. Notice how Joseph does that. How does he reflect God's character in the world? Well, God is just said, as Joseph is communicating it to it, the reason God sent me here is to save many people. Those many people were you, you sinners, you evil ones, you perpetrators of great transgression. God wanted to save you, not just you, but he, he's working out his purposes to rescue those in Egypt as well. 
And ultimately what we see Genesis is doing is the work that God is doing is he is saving you and showing his grace to you so that the world might experience his grace and mercy. Therefore, if that's the way God responds to sinners, by coming to you in your pain and your misery and your suffering in the midst of sin and offering you comfort and forgiveness and redemption, then how should we respond? How does Joseph respond? Look, uh, in verses 20 and following, as for you, uh, God, you meant it evil, God meant it for good, to bring about that many people would be alive as they are today. In verse 21, so do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. These are the guys who wanted to kill him. These are the guys who sold him into slavery. Yet here, in response to their confession and their repentance, Joseph encourages them. Don't be lost in your shame. Don't be lost in your grief and your guilt. He comes to them. He comforts them. He speaks words of forgiveness to them. But it doesn't just stop there. He says, I will provide for you. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to respond to your evil by heaping good and blessing on you. Why? Because I'm not standing in the way of God. I'm going to do as God has done to me and as God does to His people. The role of God's people while we wait is to live out His character in the world. And have we not been the beneficiaries of the same thing? Why did Jesus have to die? Because of our rebellion. We can say of the Son of God, we responded to you with sin and evil, and treachery, and transgression. And when we bring our sin to Jesus, what does He speak back? We already experienced it this morning. He comes to us. He comforts us. He speaks kind words to us. And He says, I love you, and I will provide for you and your children. I love you. If God has responded this way to us, sinners... All of us were deserving of his wrath and his curse, yet he's come to us and given himself for us. Then how should we then respond? While we wait on this God, are we as his representatives here not to live out his character in the world? Who has perpetrated the greatest act of treachery or evil against you? Who in your heart do you find it hard to forgive to pursue, to love? Who do you think is not worthy of God's grace and of His mercy and of His work of redemption? What Genesis says here to us is while we wait, we show forth the love of God that He's given to us and into the lives of others that they as well might experience His grace and His mercy. Genesis begins with God's gracious provision and creation of a world for humanity to dwell in. But we mess it up. But throughout Genesis, what we've seen is the love of God pursuing a people to redeem and rescue and restore them. And He's done that for you and for me if we've placed our hope and our trust in Jesus. While we wait, let's respond by living out the grace and the mercy that our God has shown to us. There's great hope 
as Genesis ends because we wait with confidence in our sovereign God to return for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love You. We thank You for the truth that is in Genesis as it reveals not just myth and not myth or fairy tale, but true history as you've broken into space and time and reality and you've done these great works on behalf of your people. Uh, strengthen us, we pray, as we await your return and your coming uh, for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.